It's FAQ NYC coming at you Friday morning. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer at the beach in the Hamptons. Hello. Hello. And we're doing this just after Bill de Blasio explained that his last minute decision to push back the reopening of physical schools for a second time was a, quote, greater challenge than anyone foresaw as it got harder and harder as we went along to make the different adjustments. Hmm. So I know Chris has got a lot to say there. We're about to get into it. We've got a uh, packed show this week uh, with Julie Sandorf of the Revson Foundation here to talk about the history of SROs and supportive housing in Manhattan as those have become a big topic again with the virus and with some Upper West Siders pushing hard to get the residents in newly converted facilities pushed out of their neighborhood. And you'll be hearing from the great Maria Bustillos, the editor of Popula and the guiding force behind Brickhouse, the new journalist-owned media cooperative that includes FAQ, and that you have, listener, just days left to support if you'd like, in which case, go over to Kickstarter, search for Brickhouse, sign up. You'll have a subscription to more FAQ stuff. This pod, as you're listening to it now, will still remain free. Eight other great news sites, fabulous rewards, and you can put a little bit of your money where our mouths are, if you would like. But let's talk schools, because this has been quite a start to the school year. Chrissy, what is going on? Oh, well, sadly, we have a mayor who had several months to try and figure out the logistics for millions of parents and school children across all five boroughs and waited until essentially everyone was getting their lunch boxes ready to go back to school and says, wait, sorry, <laughs> was I supposed to do that? Um, he's basically the two of us <laughs> every week, like, wait, who's in charge? What are we doing? <laughs> and so the result was, let's push this back until the 21st. Many parents were confused and trying to figure out childcare and work and, uh, the health of their children, whether or not they were going to send them back to in-person schooling or figure out some sort of zoom, right. For a five-year-old or a 15-year-old, either way, it's not ideal. And then he says, okay, so we're not ready for the 21st fully. We'll have 3K and pre-K and some of those folks going back. So that's on the parent and the student end. But then we also have to think about all of the teachers who are doing, you know, as my grandparents would say, the Lord's work. And they had some great concerns because many of their buildings have not been adequately prepared for the COVID crisis. So they're thinking about ventilation systems. We've heard stories about janitors using cleaning supplies from their own homes because everything's been diluted so much. They're essentially saying, I've been wiping down this building with some cold water and a mop, and it's just, it's not working. And so what are the filtration systems? All the things that we could have and should have been working on over the summer. It seems as though it's September, and the mayor has just now figured out that he and the school chancellor aren't prepared. Surprise. So sadly for... Surprise! <laughs> I'm not ready. Um, but I think what's what's frustrating for so many parents and educators, to say nothing of the staff who have been ready to work, they want students back uh, in schools. We know that janitors and lunch ladies love their students too, and they want them as safe as possible. Uh, reports are just now coming out that Black and Latino children are more susceptible to the coronavirus. We know that they are the majority of kids in the New York City public school system. We haven't even touched on sort of charter schools that are oftentimes co-located with public schools as well and sort of have a different jurisdiction than public school systems. So all of this is a nice little perfect storm of incompetence, ineptitude, uh, lack of preparedness, and fear <laughs> and concern from a lot of parents uh, who need and want their children to maintain their educational pursuits, but they also don't want them going into buildings that have not been adequately shored up for the coronavirus. This is the largest public school system in the country, so by no means am I saying that it's easy, but also the coronavirus didn't hit New York City public school systems on August 15th. This is something that we've been thinking about and talking about 
two of us have been thinking about this and talking about this since March. So the fact that it's September and we're just now trying to figure out what to do speaks volumes about where the mayor's priorities and focus have been. So it was 180 days between when schools shut down and when they were supposed to reopen. When de Blasio says this was a greater challenge than anyone foresaw, you know, the question springs to mind. <laughs> well, have you ever spoken to any principals in those 180 days? Because they, they are not a particularly political union or group, and they've been banging the drums and sounding the alarm. One thing to note, District 75 schools are starting on Monday. So that's the one group that is. And then it's staggered with the others, like K-5 to is starting sooner. High schools are starting later, which I think de Blasio's whole defense is Zoom school is bad. He didn't do anything to fix it, by the way, in those 180 days. Right. And so, so we really need to have this happen. And if it takes a little bit of time, hey, that's cool. Outer borough parents, they, they can roll with the punches, he says, as he's punching them. Right. Now, Harry, can you answer this question for me? Why was District 75 chosen and what is District 75 for our listeners? So District 75 is for children with special mental and often physical needs who have individual learning plans. So it's not a physical district. A lot of them also are, are bused mm-hmm. to schools elsewhere. Uh, they're the only kids who are going to have busing this year, assuming we do have physical schools reopening at some point, which I'm not taking as a given uh, for everyone else. And and so this is a group who it's an absolutely core obligation of the city to serve legally and morally. And so they are returning, but for the time being, no one else is. The, the other thing that's interesting about this staggered thing where, where the younger grades are coming back in first is it's very hard, you all know or can guess, to do Zoom with the kindergartner, right, is it begs the question, if we're doing this hybrid thing, which is crazy middle-of-the-road roadkill, like we're reopening school but only half of the time and you won't know which days until right before it starts and all that, why not reopen schools, say, for K-5 to or K-8, to and then use all those high schools to spread the students out so that they can go five days a week. And older kids who, who do have more capacity for the most part, and there are a lot of challenges there, technical ones and other ones, you know, tech, tech and other ones, but, you know, they can do things online. They didn't think about that. They didn't think until very late about having classes outside. The, the lack of ambition and imagination with this, and bear in mind, New York is the only one of the 10 largest school systems that said we're going to reopen at the start of the school year with physical classes at all. Mm-hmm. The, the lack of imagination or ambition as they went about this is staggering to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, you know, when you think about the mayor and, you know, I vacillate between being somewhat sympathetic and then completely enraged, right? Um, what's frustrating is that if he had been more focused in his second term, And no, many people did not foresee the coronavirus coming. But honestly, quite a few people did. Like when you see a global crisis happening across Asia, then moving to Europe, and then knowing the federal government incompetence that we have that is at staggering levels that we haven't seen in in our lifetime, you can start to figure out a plan. It's difficult, though, to have that plan when the mayor's ambitions and mindset are elsewhere. And also, as I've said thousands of times on this podcast, I do think that the mayor has really smart people around him. I think that a lot of his commissioners are really smart. I think their staff are really smart. I think these are people who love New York City. But the problem is, I don't know if the mayor listens to them. And the for me, the mark of a good leader isn't just to surround yourself with people who are experts and brilliant at what they do, a real leader actually listens to those people, interprets their their intelligence and their analyses, and then puts forth a plan as a leader. Now, we know on the federal level, we have incompetence, and he surrounds himself with incompetence, and so here we are. So if that's the case, then on the local level, I actually don't think de Blasio's an idiot. I think that he's smart enough to hire really smart people. I think where he falls short in his Achilles heel is that he's too insecure to actually listen to the smart people around him. He just, he clearly thinks that he knows best. And now you're looking at millions of parents and school children like, yeah, who knew? Hey, dude, we all knew. We knew. We're the ones who've been ringing the alarm. Have you not been listening to any podcasts or reading any local news 
newspaper in New York City, everyone has been saying since March, April, May, June when summer starts, July and August, what's the plan? Because these kids need to go back to school. My concern with the high school students, we know that Zoom is not ideal. I mean, I'm going blind over here with, with the Zoom time. But, you know, I'm concerned that, you know, drug usage, teenage pregnancies, we've already seen violence spiking. People need things to do. And I think that there's so many plans that the mayor could have had in place. I mean, you know, I was furious when he decided to cut the jobs programs for teenagers. It's like, do we, I mean, we have so much data that shows that young people need to be active intellectually and physically in order for a city to run properly. And this mayor is essentially, I mean, he's checked out. And, and my whole thing is this. If you want to be checked out, that is your prerogative. Then step aside, Clyde. Resign and let's get somebody in here who's actually really willing and able and ready to make these hard decisions and think about this on a daily basis. Not just, you know, at a press conference where it's like, who knew? Who knew? <laughs> who says that? You're mayor of New York City. There's nine million people who are looking at you, asking you, what are we to do? And we have principals and teachers, teachers outside who are afraid to go into their own classrooms because they know it's not safe. Janitors who are risking their lives to clean buildings with inadequate supplies. Like, come on. I mean, this is just, it sets up progressive politics in such a negative way because I do think that there's certain elements of progressive politics that can work. And like the next mayor of New York City who even hints at progressive politics. People are going to be like, it, it fails. What are you doing? Like, what are you talking so, about? And that's that's also a huge concern. We have, it's pretty incredible that we have three members of the de Blasio administration. His legal advisor, his sanitation commissioner, and his veteran affairs commissioner, who are all running for mayor. And they're not running saying, we're going to continue the work of the de Blasio administration. They're, they're, they're running to try to... Uh, correct a lot of what he's got wrong. I think you're right that he has, he has poisoned some of these waters, not from his ideological views, but from his lack of uh, competence. And just speaking, by the way, of seeing things coming, mm -hmm. I just point out that de Blasio was mayor during the great Trump-promoted Ebola scare. Uh, de Blasio was mayor when we were dealing with Legionnaires outbreaks, and him and Cuomo could not get on the same page, and we're having dueling press conferences. There was a lot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of time to prepare and to be ready for the worst prior to anyone knowing about this virus and in the months when we did know about it and before it got here. And a lot of that time was wasted, which I think is a, a perfect transition into this interview with Julie Sandorf, who has a much wider perspective on the problems that have dogged this city for decades and generations now around mental illness, uh, homelessness, and supportive housing, and why we seem to end up continually in the uh, same frustrating place, even as we know some of the solutions. So let's give that a listen. It's Thursday, September 17th, and I'm really excited to be joined by uh, Julie Sandorf, who's the president of the Charles H. Revson Foundation, that's been a tentpole supporter of local journalism projects in New York, including Chalkbeat, WNYC, ProPublica, The City, City Limits, Gotham Gazette, and Documented New York. And well before that, Julie served as the uh, founder and president of the Corporation for Supportive Housing. Hello. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. All right. Thank you so much for having me. So earlier this month, days before New York began this latest ugly game of musical chairs with removing men from the Lucerne, a hotel converted into a shelter on the Upper West Side, to the Harmonia, a shelter in Midtown for families, most of them with people with mental or physical disabilities, and then pushing those people out. Julie wrote a really powerful piece for the uh, Daily News entitled, Where is the West Side's Conscience Now?, going through some of the uh, bad old days talk that sprung back up with the uh, virus and the sheltering of men in particular there, and going into the city's history with SROs, single residence occupancies, and supportive housing. That over recent decades, a lot of that's been converted into luxury housing. The, uh, the homeless population has exploded, the street homeless population. 
Julie, thank you so much for joining us. And you were involved in a lot of this history. I'm hoping that you can take our listeners through it and how it led to this moment. Sure. No, I, I'm, I'm really so pleased to be able to do that. Um, this story begins not with the Lucerne. It begins 50 years ago. And with a confluence of unanticipated consequences of public policies, good intentions, market forces that certainly helped New York City's recovery from its near bankruptcy in 1975, poverty, and all of those combined created the perfect storm, which we are still living in today. A little bit of history. In, in the late 50s and early 1960s, the development of psychotropic medications to uh, relieve the worst symptoms of serious mental illness became the flavor du jour and prompted uh, a movement to deinstitutionalize people who had been spending um, you know, their decades, years, decades, or their lives in state psychiatric institutions with the laudable uh, and good intended goal of them being able to live in community with the proper supports. Um, give you some idea of, of how that played out. Between 1965 and 1977, the state released over 126,000 patients from state hospitals into the New York City area, metro area. In 1981, an estimated 46,000 of those patients resided in New York City. Then, over the following decades, those hospitals kept being closed. Right now, the non-forensic inpatient psychiatric system shrunk to the point where there is a total of 2,267 people in inpatient non-forensic psychiatric system in all of New York State. A little over 500 of those beds exist in the New York metro area for long-term patients. Uh, the revenues, and this is a very important piece of this, as those hospitals were closing and that system was shrinking, the revenues saved from the closing of the system, which was not a great system. I'm not advocating we, op we open Pilgrim State Hospital, but those revenues went into the general treasury. They were not dedicated into a specific fund for community housing and services for people with serious mental illness. The other thing people should also remember is that serious mental illness is a chronic disease uh, and an incredibly debilitating disease that 4.6% of the population suffers with year in, year out. So if you close whole psychiatric systems and do not accommodate what will be people who have serious mental illness, um, usually happens in their late adolescence, early 20s, this is, this is you, you can't cure mental illness. You can support people with mental illness. Um, so it doesn't go away. Uh, and it is uh, endemic throughout our entire society from, and the only difference between people who are homeless with serious mental illness and people who are not is that those people have family, friends, and resources to do to be able to live in the community. Um, there is no other difference. The other thing is poverty. Between 1976 and 1982 in New York City, poverty rate increased from 17% to 24%, with 30% of African-American households in 1982 at the poverty level. And then the last piece of this perfect storm was the loss of what was housing last resort for people in poverty and, and primarily for people who were deinstitutionalized from psychiatric hospitals. To give you some background, in the mid 20th century, there were about 200,000 SRO rooms in New York City. They were rooming houses for immigrants, newcomers, and including stage professionals, you know, aspiring actors, um, aspiring musicians. The SROs were the landing places for so many people coming to realize their dreams in New York. And, 
And yeah. if I can jump in for one second there, there's no totally accepted definition for what constitutes an right. SRO. But what we're basically talking about here is you have a, uh, you have yeah. a room and you've got uh, other people in rooms. You've got a shared bathroom yeah. and shower situation. Um, maybe you've got a yeah. sink. Maybe you've got a hot pot. Not to be a uh, crass, but in my experience, you know, many people end up using men, particularly end up using their sinks to, as as a place right. to pee, and you know, it, it's sort of a a low end but functional right. way to live. And one very cool thing is, if you live there for six months, you stop paying New York's exorbitant, like basically twenty percent hotel right. tax. So it's a very cheap right. way to live. And then if you live there for a while, you end up accidentally getting uh, what, what for a lot of people might be the largest check they've gotten in a long time in one right. chunk. And, you know, and it also encompassed the, the, the flop houses on the Bowery, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but these these they were rooming houses, basically, and some of them were a little higher end and a lot were lower end, but they but they provided for so many people, people who had no other options. And for people who were released from the psychiatric hospitals, they were the housing of the last resort. That's where these folks went to live, by and large. And so here we have the deinstitutionalization. And then from 1970 to 1982, the city lost 112 thousand units of SROs to market rate conversions, 89% of the then existing stock. And primarily they were located up and down the West side. In the decades to follow, um, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Bowery, but the Bowery was New York City skid row. I mean, there's not much of that left, but in the 14-block area around the Bowery, SRO rooms and flop houses housed between 15 and 25,000 people a night. We know what the Bowery looks like now. Any remnant of that is um, the kitchen supply equipment <laughs> stores. Um, it's now extremely upscale. So what happens what happens in the convergence of those two factors is we start seeing people living on the street. And in 1979, a landmark lawsuit was settled, Callahan versus Carey, which required the city of New York to provide shelter beds to homeless people. And following that suit, New York City increased its average nightly bed capacity for single adults from around 2,000 beds to 6,500 beds. These beds were primarily in armory drilling floors. And I pulled up a field report that was filed in 1982 that describes the conditions in one of these armory drill room floors. And it said, all 540 plus beds are amassed in the center of a cavernous drill room floor allowing for the small staff to keep watch more easily. Vans from the Bowery drive up ramps through the night and early morning hours directly onto the drill room floor. Men are not allowed out of the area unless escorted. Lines of police barricades mark off a route to the showers and toilets located one floor below. The shortage of staff requires that men who wish to use bathroom facilities, wait until a sufficient number are gathered to warrant a staff escort. And keep in mind that by the mid-1980s, New York City had the highest rate of tuberculosis in the country, and that was largely attributable to these large-scale shelters and jails. That's where we were. But out of what we were seeing to be a catastrophe actually came some of the smartest and most effective solutions to this problem. And as with so many challenging issues, the solutions come out of grassroots, ground up, direct experience. And in the early to mid eighties, New York City was very fortunate to have pioneers who saw that 
the essential problem was um, not just mental health services, not just integration in the community, but also the need for permanent housing for people who were very vulnerable, often had chronic health and mental health issues, um, and and comorbidity with substance abuse. I mean, people with serious mental, mental illness, you know, they do what what most of the population does when they're not feeling well. They self-medicate. It's not that different. Um, and they realized that that the answer was combining permanent housing, a place to live, a place to feel like you are belonging, and the supports needed to live with dignity in the community. And there are two amazing, there are actually three amazing examples um, that that came out of advocacy and work with people with mental illness um, and people who are homeless. Uh, the first, and these folks are heroes of New York, um, Father John Felice and Father John McVeigh were the parish priests at St. Francis, Francis Church on West 31st Street. And following their values of the Franciscan order, which is charity and service, the fathers made it their mission to provide services and support to the people with chronic mental illness that were living in SROs in, in Midtown. And what they started seeing was the very same people that they were with every day were starting to get evicted from their rooms um, because of uh, the conversion of these buildings to other uses that were more lucrative. And in 1981, with funds that they borrowed from their order, they bought one of those SROs themselves on East 24th Street. And they did the renovation on their own. And they provided permanent housing with support services for 97 people with serious mental illness. And, and through also a partnership with uh, the community health program at St. Vincent's Hospital. And lo and behold, those folks became healthier, they were stable, they felt part of a larger community, and the fathers went on and bought, with city support after this model was proven to work, two more SROs in the same neighborhood and did the same thing. The second hero I want to talk about is uh, Ellen Baxter and Tony Hannigan. Uh, Ellen Baxter in 1979 uh, wrote the seminal report, uh, I think it was 81, wrote the seminal report with Kim Hopper called Private Lives, Public Spaces, which explored this emerging phenomenon of street people. And she was the co-founder of the Coalition for the Homeless. And with Tony Hannigan, who at that point was a social work student at Columbia, working with tenants in SROs on the Upper West Side with serious mental illness, looking, you know, helping them stay in their housing because they were facing the same circumstances as those tenants that, that the fathers were helping further downtown, they came to the conclusion that the only way to solve this problem is providing a permanent home, flexible support services and care of creating a place of dignity and belonging and mixing people with special needs with working people um, who needed affordable housing. And they, they created two organizations, the Committee for the Inwood Heights Homeless and Columbia Center for Urban Community Services. And they created the first mixed model of supportive housing in Washington Heights, which provided supportive housing, uh, 55 units of supportive housing for formerly homeless people and very low-income working people at less than 50% of the cost of the cot of the drill, drill room floor. And the third example, which is close to home to me, is Capitol Hall on uh, West 87th Street. In the early 80s, uh, the West 87th Street Block Association also was seeing the emergence of people living on the street. And instead of shunning them aside, 
they decided to team up with the local settlement house, Scotted Riverside, and create a purchase, a 202-unit SRO on the Upper West Side to develop a supportive housing um, because they were concerned that those tenants were going to get kicked out and that building was going to be converted to luxury housing. Capitol Hall is still alive and well on West 87th Street. These early experiments led to Ed Koch and the Koch administration putting supportive housing and the renovation of SROs as supportive housing as a critical piece of of his 10-year plan. New York City was the nation's first to adopt this as a city policy and strategy. And most importantly, they realized that they had to coordinate capital funds and, and service supports to create very flexible services that enable people to stay in their permanent housing. And it was hugely successful. And so successful that in 1990, Mayor Dinkins and Governor Cuomo signed an unprecedented agreement called New York, New York, which was a joint agreement between the city and the state to jointly fund supportive housing for people, homeless people with serious mental illness. It was established by Cuomo and Dinkins. It was renewed by Giuliani and Pataki. It was renewed again by Bloomberg and Spencer and was not renewed by de Blasio and Cuomo. There is no New York, New York for each, each, the mayor and the governor chose to go their own separate ways. But New York, New York created almost 11,000 units of supported housing, which also included licensed community residences, uh, which are slightly more restricted. And it also funded 3,500 scattered site supportive housing units. This has been a true success story. Uh, there is a, a seminal study that everyone refers to that was done by uh, Dennis Culhane, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in 2002. And this study looked at the administrative data, uh, jails, emergency room visits, shelter visits, uh, Medicaid funding, all of the systems that homeless people with mental illness would touch while they were homeless and looked at the administrative data for almost 4,700 people who had been homeless with serious mental illness and who were now housed under these various supportive housing arrangements and looked at the cost differences to these two systems. So the same 4,700 who had been homeless cycling through jails, emergency rooms, shelters, inpatient site uh, in general hospitals, and then what it was costing the taxpayer once they were in supportive housing. And lo and behold, uh, the cost of doing nothing was about $40,000 a year per person. And the cost of somebody settled in stable supportive housing created an annual savings for that person of $16,000 a year. So not only were, are we doing the right thing, but we're doing the right thing for the taxpayer. By the late 1990s, the single adult shelter census in New York City had dropped by 50%. Retention rates in supportive housing ranged from 80 to 90%. And so where are we today? Well, up until now, this this has sounded a lot like a success story. You got it. Right? <laughs> you got it. So what changed? What changed? Um, First, just to give you a couple of statistics about where we are today, and then I can I can give you my thoughts on what's changed and and what's made it so much more challenging. And, and I hope I, I know you have a lot to go through and uh, there's so much time, but I, I hope you can also talk just a little about, uh, you know, your own experience working working with the Franciscans and, and, sure. and personally I'm happy with all to. this. Um, just sort of where we are today. So in August, uh, single adults in shelters uh, averaged more than 17,600 people, the highest level in the city data going back to 1994. There are 13,000 single adults in hotels right now. There continue to be steep reductions in state psychiatric centers serving New York City. 
According to a 2018 report by the Manhattan Institute, non-forensic state psych inpatient centers lost 15% of their bed capacity from 2014 to 2018. From 2015 to 2017, the number of mentally ill homeless New Yorkers increased by 22% or 2,200. The city opened six dedicated mental health shelters, now totaling 28 at a cost of $150 million a year. Uh, in 2008, almost 1,300 New York City jail inmates had a, a diagnosis of serious mental illness. Compare that to the average daily census of adults in the Creedmoor State Psychiatric Center, which is 323. What has happened in part is that mental health, which has always been a state responsibility since the early 19th century, has increasingly become the city's responsibility, transferring piecemeal bit by bit of the state's responsibility to the city. And the responses in the recent years to increasing levels of homelessness are, are also kind of shocking. Um, for example, in June 2019, the governor announces that he's going to add 500 MTA police to fix quality of life issues on the subway. Citizens Budget Commission estimates that annual cost to be $250 million. We know what he was talking about in fixing quality of life. In August 2009, the mayor responds by doubling outreach to the homeless in the subways to 126 million. Meanwhile, the reality on the street is where are the MTA cops or the street outreach workers going to take these folks? There is no pipeline to actually do something about it. And interestingly, one of the reasons you're seeing less folks in the subways now is that they're in hotel rooms. I would note that, that the shutdown of the subways at night, which is another kabuki element that, that is clearly about the homeless. You have this incredible site that the Daily News and others have shown where you're basically throwing people out of the train system. So trains are still running, but no one's allowed on them. And those people are then going and immediately getting onto buses because the, the, those are continuing to run, which I think really captures the absurdity of, of some of this and trying to police your way out of having homeless. But some of them are actually being taken to hotels and sh lo and behold, they're not going back on the street. <laughs> Why would you if you had a safe option? I mean, honestly, the other, you know, what else is happening? Um, the city's Thrive program dedicated $850 million to mental health. Unclear how much of that has actually been dedicated to people with serious mental illness. Could that money been better used to provide the kind of health care, mental health care, and that includes inpatient care um, to help stabilize people, safe havens for people with serious mental illness, and, and services for additional supportive housing. $850 million, a lot of money. Instead of going forward with the New York, New York 4 program, the city instituted its 1515 program, promising 15,000 units of supportive housing over the next five years. Uh, that, that was announced five years ago. Four, 500 units have come online. 900 are in construction. The city has cut 40% of its capital housing budget, and whatever the pipeline is of supportive housing going forward is on hold. Everything's been put on pause. So, and then the state announced its own program almost five years ago a promise of 6,000 units and less than 500 have been put online. How did I come to being so in, involved in this for the past 30 years? There are two things. Uh, in 1989, I was uh, running a community development housing finance program in partnership with the city of New York uh, for LISC, Local Initiative Support Corporation. And I received a visit from Father John McVeigh and Father John Felice, who were in their Franciscan friar robes 
And they came to me and they said, why can't you do for homelessness and, and the homeless mentally ill what you're doing for neighborhood revitalization? And I looked at them and said, I don't know anything about homelessness. I don't know much about mental illness. And if this, and if you have a solution that is as powerful as you say you have, you ought to create a new organization that will focus on this as, as the solution and business as usual to solving homelessness among single adults. And they were very upset with me and they left and I figured I was doomed to hell because two Catholic priests have now said, you know, you're, you've disappointed us. Um, two months later, I land up in a very large national foundation that is looking to deploy their considerable resources for good. And I, um, at the suggestion of a friend, I go meet Ellen Baxter and I go see the St. Francis Friends of the Poor Residences. And this was in 1989. And I was totally blown away. Committee for the Inwood Heights Homeless was, were providing dignity, stability, and community support for formerly homeless people at half the cost of a drill room floor. Caught. As were the fathers. And I just said, why isn't this business as usual? This is the way to go. And that led to my establishing the Corporation for Supportive Housing with basically the capital provided, the initial capital provided by the Ford Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Pew Charitable Trust. And it is a national intermediary that basically provided the technical support, financing, and support for community organizations to develop supportive housing um, for these populations all over the country. Supportive housing is now the most respected answer and solution to, to homelessness for people with disabilities. I say the second piece of why I care so much about this is very personal. I had a sister, um, of blessed memory, who had serious psychiatric and physical problems. Supportive housing saved her life. Um, she was continually in and out of emergency rooms. Um, I would beg the ER docs to keep her as an inpatient to see if we could stabilize her on medication. And they, you know, they didn't, they wouldn't. Um, I finally was able to, through tremendous amount of effort on a lot of people's part, enable her to be admitted as an inpatient for two weeks and uh, was able to get her uh, psychiatrically stabilized. She moved to supportive housing and for the five years that she lived there until she passed away, she did not enter an emergency room once. She found a community of people who she loved and loved her. She had the first boyfriend and love of her life. And, and she had a family who loved her. She had a sister who loved her and cared about her. But for that, my sister would have been, most likely would have been homeless. Um, so I've personally seen how a caring community that is patient and can cope with the idiosyncrasies of folks. And there are idiosyncrasies. <laughs> it's not a smooth path. Uh, we all have them. Um, can really save lives and, and really enable people to be part of a much larger community and have a sense of belonging. And, and it's, you know, an unmitigated success story. So, I think that that leaves the question of how New York can get back to this success story and uh, what that might mean for, for this and even for future mayors coming up soon and governors will we'll find out when. Um, well, I'd say there are a few things we can do. 
Uh, one is this is not the time for retrenchment for capital spending. Our budget problems in New York City are not a capital budget problem. It's an operating budget problem. And so there may be a small silver lining to the, the to catastrophe we're all living through, which is a recalibration of the real estate market. And there might be opportunities like there were in the mid 80s to acquire properties that could be affordably repurposed for supportive housing. We have not had those opportunities in, you know, well over a decade because of an exceedingly overheated real estate market. I mean, that is, that is the truth. This kind of housing has literally been priced out of the market. We have an opportunity here to recalibrate. I think we also have to, because I, I'm a big believer in the social contract, there should be a codification and enforcement of standards of service in in shelters. There are extraordinarily great nonprofit shelter and supportive housing providers. We have been doing this well for decades. Those standards should be adopted and they should be part of how we cite and how we work in a neighborhood. We should make it much easier for people to have inpatient care. It is incredibly difficult to have somebody admitted as an inpatient for more than overnight observation. We need those services aligned with transitional housing and services that work in a neighborhood context. We need to work with communities to resolve legitimate issues. But what we also have to do is have the backbone to stand up to bullies. And I have worked with administration since Koch and many mayors and their deputy mayors have stood up to bullies. And there is a big difference between resolving legitimate issues and standing up to bullies. And I think we also have to shed light on the responsibility of the state of New York for the appropriate provision of mental health care. It is a state responsibility and it is increasingly become a city responsibility. We need new models. I mean, I, I've been advocating for decades that the flop house has a place in our housing spectrum. Oh, um, not necessarily in a residential neighborhood, but, you know, in, a na- in places where people can just do the kind of destructive behaviors they want to do. Um, you know, the, the role of what the Bowery used to be. We still we will always have people who are not going to want to be with the standards of norms of of what community life should be. So you need that. Um, micro units. There were there are all sorts of great new models that that could be adopted that would be more cost effective. And and I think you know the bottom line here is particularly in this moment. I think we all have to think about what side of history we want to be on. This is at the end of the day. Uh, to me, the, the absolute quintessential moral question. And while I, I do think we all have to be good neighbors to each other, um, I think we also have to be just a little more tolerant. And when we see people who are clearly suffering, also remember how incredibly lucky we are we're not them. Amen for our Rosh Hashanah thoughts of the day. (laughs) I want to carry this into 5781 for sure. That's right. (laughs) Julie, thank you so much for taking the time and a a fair amount of it to just just sort of scratch the surface of this. But it's it's really appreciated. And uh, I hope you'll you'll join us again, uh, hopefully with uh, my partner, Chrissy Greer and Alex Lynn also here. And thank you so much. Uh, it's much appreciated. Thank you, Harry. I, I really appreciate being able to talk about it and, and Shana Tova and better times ahead. <laughs> so, Harry, thanks for, for that great interview. That was wonderful. Uh, so I guess we should mention, Harry, that we're fancy now. We're, we're now an award-winning podcast. You want to tell our listeners about it? Well, in my best British accent, perhaps, 
This is my fancy. <laughs> oh, action. darling, 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 darling. So, darling, we've won the Deadline Club. It's for audio and video and some sort of uh, episode that we had with Susan Watts, who now works with Scott Stringer, but she's been a journalist for many, many years, darling. And so that episode is the reason why we have the Deadline Club. So now we're an award-winning podcast uh, and very excited. Very, very excited. It's true. I can't do accents, but we won the (laughs) Deadline Club Award for radio or audio feature reporting. For our episode talking about pictures with Susan Watts, who for many, many years was at the Daily News. If you go to FAQ.NYC and go to this episode, you'll see the, the link to it there. Congratulations, all. The judges picked Harry Siegel, Christina Greer, and Alexandra Lynn of FAQ NYC for talking about pictures. Congratulations. Here's why they picked it. They wrote, if a picture is worth a thousand words then talking about pictures certainly deserves the top prize. We loved listening to every minute of Susan Watts talk about her gritty and grimy and even sometimes scary New York photo assignments for the Daily News. From John Gotti to Gloria the Bronx prostitute and drug addict, Susan really captured New York in pictures and every one of her pictures tells a great New York story. Congratulations. Now that we're fancy, it's a perfect time to transition to this uh, conversation with Maria Bustillos, a popular and a brick house, this journalist-owned media collective that FAQ is now housed in. Uh, Chrissy and I talked with her earlier this week. Uh, still can't do an accent, but let's jump right in, Mitch. <laughs> we're mighty, mighty. It's Tuesday, 11 a.m. in the only city, New York City. But 8 a.m. on the West Coast, where things are on fire, and joining us right now to talk about some stuff is Maria Bustillas, the brilliant editor of Popula, and the driving force behind this new collective, including FAQ NYC of Wolfproof Journalism, The Brick House. Uh, Maria Fill everyone in, please. What is this? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I love to be here. I love FAQ NYC, and it's great to be here so early. (laughs) (laughs) We appreciate you. Um, Yes, everything is on fire, including me. The Brick House is the passion project of uh, culminating a lot of our careers in journalism because, you know, there's, there's nine founding publications. One of them is FAQ NYC and a bunch of us decided that we needed our own platform. We don't want to be at the behest and mercy of owners and investors and advertisers who are going to censor and control and put an end to our work of telling people true and interesting things about the world. And so we have built a cooperative. There's no investors. There's no owners. There'll be no advertisers. It's just something over a dozen journalists working together, sharing revenues and expenses and working for our readers and nobody else. That's basically the idea. And listeners. Yeah. (laughs) Reading with your ears the same. (laughs) So uh, some of us had been involved originally in civil, including Harry and Christine had been involved in civil, which was a project that had intended to accomplish some of the same things. In that case, it was a blockchain-based publishing platform where a token was supposed to be the sort of value-holding proposition where we could all work toward the value growing in a crypto token. And that would be it denominated in journalism. It was kind of a weird idea, in my opinion, a great idea, but it faced a lot of regulatory headwinds and a lot of uh, it was complicated idea. And so that those things kind of like worked against it, particularly on the regulatory side and the crypto winter and all that stuff where we saw, you know, sort of like Ethereum had been worth fourteen hundred dollars and it dropped in price to sixty six dollars. And the success of that project was kind of tied to the value of Ethereum. So that kind of like was was not the greatest. But anyway, in the wake of that failure of that last year, a bunch of us thought, all right, let's just use the same ideas and use a more conventional cooperative model. 
so we studied cooperatives for a long time, like years, and read all about like Arismendi Bakery and the cooperative projects in Barcelona and all these different approaches to worker-owned businesses. And with the help of a of a really genius friend, George Carr, an old friend of mine, who's turned out by chance to be a trust lawyer, um, and uh, I mean a, a corporate lawyer and a trust expert, um, we created a, a really cool structure for the form of ownership of this business. There's nothing like it anywhere. And we're going to take it out for a test drive pretty soon. It's very exciting. This has been sort of a big year for these sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like a defector, I suppose, from some of my friends formerly at uh, Deadspin Mm -hmm. had this this sort of explosive launch. And you're starting to see sort of a handful of, of people picking up this same idea. Personally, I always found the whole cryptocurrency part of this intellectually fascinating, but you know, I referred to those as space books mm-hmm. and, and and mentally it was like, you know, and I, I said this to Christina and to Alex, like if these space books end up being, being real books, that's awesome. You know, but like in the meantime, like let, let's just go and do this thing. So the idea of trying to align without any of that with something that's just very straightforward, here are these journalists also including sludge, which does muckraking and hmm, Daily, which does a uh, cranky contrarian politics, a uh, pan-African site, a comic site, which I'm really excited about that's coming. And just the idea, hey, let's do this work. If people want to pay to to support that directly, no, no middleman or intermediary, like, that's awesome. And let's just see where it goes. And you can help it go somewhere by visiting us, nudge, nudge, on Kickstarter. <laughs> Right now, where there's, I believe, eight days to go. Four days. That's right. It's just about a week left. Four days. This was recorded on Tuesday. And we're uh, something over two-thirds of the way where we uh, are to our goal. Of course, I would like to exceed that. Because <laughs> the more we can raise, the better our initial offerings are going to be. And the better of a site that we can build. But we kind of chose a figure that would be a minimum, you know, whereby we could just get this thing on the road and see where it goes. I'm just very excited. People are already putting pieces together. I saw some of the comics from Arai yesterday. That's Jason Adam Katzenstein's site. He's like, you know, he's like, he wants things that are more weird and more sad and more queer. And and I'm like, okay, that sounds great. I can't wait to read it. Like there's all kinds of really beautiful things coming. So. So Maria, like, you know, when you go to the Brickhouse site and you, you see what's been happening to journalism just across the country, Mm. you know, and journalists getting laid off and sites closing and newspapers closing down. But it seems like some people are just averse to paying for news, even though they want more diverse news. So how do we bridge that gap between sort of newspapers and news sites going under folks really wanting something different and then also not wanting to pay for the service? Well, Nathan Robinson wrote a really great piece a couple of weeks back about how the lies are free, but the truth costs money. Like when you go to sort of Breitbart and the really wild right wing conspiracy sites, those are always free because they're subsidized by the far right. And so you can always find something free to read. But the question is, what quality is it? You know, I think that having seen so many loved outlets go under. I mean, this this is what we saw with Defector, who I also like really love and champion. You know, people really love Deadspin. Those people were getting like in a good month, 20 million unique visitors. And, you know, they all, it just shut down. And so people realize that they want it and they're going to need to pay for it. And so they're paying for it. And they're realizing that when they do that, they're going to get the quality that they loved. And nobody has to fight you know, with any editors telling them to stick to sports, you know, it's just going to be the thing they wanted. Mm-hmm. And we're um, all come from the same kind of tradition of independent journalism, you know, like Harry came from The Voice and I came from The All and and Gawker I wrote for and other places where people w- wanted to be free to say exactly what they wanted, write what they wanted, say what they wanted to the public and, and not, not be controlled or shut down or abused for it. And so I think that what people are paying for isn't just news. They're paying for an idea and an ethos of truthfulness and passion and honesty. I think I may have just come up with the motto here. No owners, 
no advertising, no bullshit. Totally. That's where we're at. And I, it's exhilarating just talking about it. You know, it's, you know, making it happen, like in these really kind of dark times, you know, having something really hopeful like this to work on. I leap out of bed. It's like, I can't breathe the air outside right now in Oakland, but I mean, I like run to my desk, you know, it's, I believe in this so much that, um, it's, it's actually made my working life really joyful again. It's it's a fantastic feeling. Well, it's sort of like when I tell my students, it's like, if you're doing the thing that you're passionate about, kind of can't fail. I mean, I know that sounds so hippy dippy, but like, it's, Mm-hmm. The energy that you're putting towards it just makes it happen. And it seems almost effortless. Yeah. I mean, cause the thing is we've already, I feel like it's already succeeded because getting these ideas out into the air where people are talking about them and comparing it with how they're living and what they're seeing and what they're reading and like having a context to understand what happened at Deadspin, having a context to understand what happened at DNA Info and and the village voice and all these other places you know there's there's these sort of vectors of attack against the free press in this country they're really powerful muddied interests do not like there being voices out there who can be scornful of them who can criticize them take them down expose their wrongdoing it's a lot more convenient to the powerful to have everybody very obedient and quiet and that's not what a free society is supposed to be about so we're out there making sure that we keep the values that we grew up believing in. That's what I'm trying to do. And look, if you like all this, just go to Kickstarter, go to the Brick House. You can find the information at FAQ NYC and or popular if you need a hand or you can just use the Google and, um, and support something. If you put in $65 or more, you'll end up being a subscriber to everything the Brick House does at these nine different, really disparate and interesting sites for the next year. And you'll be putting your money where your mouth has been about wanting real, independent, place-based journalism. If you're listening, I hope we'll see you there, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Maria, any uh, any last last words? Uh, I know Chrissy was talking a minute ago, right before we started recording. We always end up with the good stuff right before we start recording. <laughs> oh. But about how, for those of us who are lucky enough to have you know jobs and a certain stability amidst all this, that this can be in some ways a a dream year as people realize that they, they got to get to their projects now. Yeah, it's it's a now or never moment. For so many things, if you have like a passion and values that you believe in, we're in a position right now to instantiate those things meaningfully, to create a future that we want to live in. And uh, we hope you'll join us at the Brick House because that's the home for freedom and and truth and passion in journalism. Can we get one chorus of we're a brick house? <laughs> That's what that's what um, Joe McLeod said that on his video. He's like, "We're mighty, mighty." <laughs> the bridge <laughs> right. it out. Yeah. It is mighty, <laughs> mighty. Come with us. <laughs> so on three, yeah, I, I think we can do mighty, mighty. Um, uh, we're a brick house, mighty might. Just letting it all hang out. Okay. <laughs> One, two, three. I'll, I'll lead because I have the beautiful singing voice. Okay, you sure do. We're, We're a, a brick, brick house. house. We're mighty, mighty, mighty. Let it all, let it all hang, hang out. out. <laughs> I think we need to stick to journalism, gang. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Still, that was fun. F A Q. So, Harry, that was a great conversation. I'm really excited that we're now working with Brick House. And uh, there's a Kickstarter if people are interested and they can go to Kickstarter and check out Brick House if they want to support journalists. It's not just us, FAQ NYC, but we're housed with eight other media entities if you want to support journalism from around the country. Thank you. And with that, we'll be back next week 
on our usual schedule that we've abandoned for a couple of weeks now, which means your episode should be out on Thursday. And FAQ NYC is part of the Brick House Collective. Check us out on Kickstarter and very soon on the internet. We're housed at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research at NYU. We try to record there, but for the time being, we're coming at you from the internet and wherever we can. A special thank you to our guests, Julie Sandorf of the Revson Foundation and Maria Bustillos of Brickhouse and Popula, which is a great website you should check out if you haven't, if you like the smart stuff. FAQ is executive produced by Alex Brooklyn. We're screwed, chopped, sliced, diced, mixed, and mastered by Adam Kamara. Everyone, be safe, wear a mask, do your thing, and we'll see you here soon. Goodbye. Cheerio. Cheerio. Ta-ta. We fancy now. We fancy. We fancy now. <laughs>